0: Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. No, whatever that means. Okay, oh, there we go. We're good. Well, good afternoon, Echo Church. It's good to be with you guys. I'm excited to continue in God's Word uh, with you. You guys already have your Bibles open, hopefully, to Isaiah chapter 40, and I just want to jump right in. We're in our tenth, our tenth time together, and uh, actually, ten for me. And then we had Pastor Evie come one week, so we're actually in our our eleventh week in the book of Isaiah together. We're calling the the series the the sovereign servant. And hopefully you get the idea of the sort of the dichotomy of those terms, the, the rub of those terms as God is sovereign, and yet what sovereign king comes as a servant? So Isaiah is full of these, these rubs, these things back and forth of, for instance, God's God's kingdomness and his, his kingliness and his warrior-like abilities. God is the sovereign ruler of the world, of the universe. And we have this mysterious servant that we're about to see in our text in the coming weeks, this servant that comes that seems to have godly, godlike, if you will, characteristics, but who is a servant and who is lowly. And today, we are going to see this rub again as we see God's sovereignty And then as we see the gentleness with which he calls out to his enemies to come. So let's jump in to our text. And before I read out of the text that you guys just had in Isaiah 40, I'd like to start in Isaiah chapter 39, just a few verses before that, starting in Isaiah 39 verse 5. Now we covered this last week if you were here, but I want to just take us back to the end of last week, and I want us to read again what we're seeing here so we have context for what we're getting into in Isaiah 40. Here's Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 8. It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. So notice in verse 6 there, Where Isaiah tells the king, King Hezekiah, there are days coming up in the future. And what's going to happen? When all your house and the house which your fathers have stored up, everything that has happened, the previous kings in Israel, what they have built is going to be taken away. The story that was going on, if you missed last week, is that Hezekiah took these, these, these envoys, these, these delegates, if you will, from Babylon, and he simply showed him all of his treasures. He showed them all of the weapons. He showed him everything that he has in his royal storehouse. And those delegates left, and they went back, and they told the Babylonian king all that they had seen. And as I mentioned last week, all that they had seen got wrote, written down into the royal records of the kings of Babylon and would then get stored there for for centuries to come. And what Isaiah is telling Hezekiah in this particular moment is he says, Hezekiah, you were acting out of pride and you were acting like a fool because you showed them all that is there. Now you put a big target on your back because they're coming for you. They won't come now, he tells Hezekiah. They won't come now, they will come in the future. And just prior to this in our story, times were really good, weren't they? Some of you that have been here the last few weeks, you guys remember the story of the king of Assyria coming and surrounding Jerusalem, and then God miraculously took out the Assyrian army and brought peace to Hezekiah? So there was a peaceful time that Hezekiah was in. Now all of a sudden, Isaiah has flipped it on him and said, Hezekiah, there's a day coming where this time is not going to be peaceful anymore. And we have this kind of flip-flop back and forth, right? We have Isaiah bringing in good news, and then we have a flip-flop and he brings in bad news. And he just keeps flipping back and forth, back and forth. And what we see here now is that in the midst of, peace that Hezekiah is currently living in, we are hearing of another future exile, a time when God's people will be pulled away from their country and their land that God had given them and taken away this time to the nation of Babylon. And some of you know the story. The prophecy will actually be fulfilled a hundred years after this takes place, so just so, and we and I put it on the on the screen behind, just so we can see Babylon's rise in 710 BC. Now remember, guys, BC we're counting down as we go forward in the future. That always confused me in school. I, I just I couldn't quite get that. 710 is before 605 BC. Got it? 710 BC is what we have happening right here in Isaiah chapter 39. The king is this guy named merodach Baladan, and he sends these delegates, these envoys, to, to Hezekiah. But a hundred years later, about 105 years later, we have another king that rises up, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Some of you have heard about him, and he defeats Judah like that. There isn't even a, a, a fight of any kind. And he begins to remove all of the people of the nation of Judah, and he brings them back to Babylon. And there you can read about that in the books in the Old Testament of Jeremiah, the book of Daniel, and the book of Ezekiel all take place around this time period right here. So we've got this flip-flop back and forth. As I said, there was peace because of the Assyrians had been destroyed. Then all of a sudden, the Babylonians get brought into the picture, and now there's not peace anymore. And then as we're going to read in a second, we have another flip-flop as we get to chapter 40. It's as if Isaiah wants us to understand that life flip-flops on us. It's as if the Word of God is constantly putting together this peaceful times connected with times that, let's just say, are not so peaceful. Because life works that way. Can anybody testify to that? Life works works like that. Things are going well, you feel like you're on top of the world, the next day, bam, you feel like you're bottom of the barrel. And, and, and Scripture will consistently bring these two things together for us. And I want to talk as we go forward as to why that is. Why does Scripture always put us together in these places where we are flip-flopping back and forth? Because we're about to flip flop again. And I want you to see that the reason for this judgment that's coming on Babylon, by the way, is because is not just because Hezekiah messed up, it's because the people of God messed up. If you read the book of Jeremiah and, and I encourage you to go read that book at some point, the reason for for for, for Isaiah speaking to Hezekiah is not just because of his sin. Those people at that time, a hundred years later, had rebelled against God. They had turned away from God again, and so God is going to to bring them into exile as a way of again teaching them to be desperate for Him. But let's look now at Isaiah chapter forty, verse one, and let's notice the first words that we read in verse one. The words are this: "Comfort." Comfort, my people, says your God. So, anybody have whiplash? Assyria, that's bad. Syria gets destroyed, that's good. Babylon's coming in a hundred years, that's bad. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, that's good. There's back and forth and back and forth. And here's what I want to get at this afternoon in this text. Here's what I want us to see here. I want to suggest something to those who are reading our Bibles. In other words, anybody who is here in the room that says, I want to read God's word and I want to read it rightly. I want to read it in a way that honors God. I want to make a plea to the members of Echo Church because I know that's true of you. I've talked to you, many of you, about that. And anyone else who's in this room right now or hearing my voice, considering making this church perhaps your home, or just wanting to be at another church, a faithful Christian who knows their Bibles and who loves their Bibles. Here's the plea that I want to make to all of you, that we read the Bible, get ready, the way the Bible wants us to read it. That we Read the Bible the way the Bible wants us to read it. In other words, I'm asking that we, together, develop a lens for viewing the Bible that would be the kind of lens that God has shown us from the Bible that we should have. Now, I realize that's confusing, but let's let's pause for a minute and realize, let's just stop and realize... We all read everything, and we look at life and everything around us through a particular lens. Is that fair to say? And so so what I'm saying is that we develop a biblical lens for viewing the Bible, that the Bible itself actually teaches us how to look at the Bible, and that there's right ways to read the Bible with that lens, and then there's wrong ways to read the Bible. There's wrong lenses that we can have on it. What's the alternative, for instance? What's a a wrong lens that we could have for reading the Bible? For instance, reading the Bible as 21st century people living in Southern California with the viewpoints and culture that we have learned from the world outside of the Bible and then bringing that to the Bible. That would be a wrong lens. In other words, I want to plead for us to be Bible people. That the Bible shapes the way we view the world. As if when we look out into the world, we're so saturated with Scripture that we see the world through the lens that the Bible has given us. But if that gets flipped, then we begin to see the Bible through the lens that the world has given us and we're going to see things in a very distorted way. Now in the last 100 years, a worldview has come into full swing. It's typically called postmodernism. Some of you may be familiar with this. And what postmodernism has done is to make it very clear that we all are a product of where we come from, right? We all have lenses that are because we're born in a particular place, we have had certain things happen to us in our lives, and those things color the way we view everything in the world. Now, that's something that I think was really significant that postmodernism in the last 100 years has given us. It's reminded us that we are all coming from different places. We all have different perspectives with, with, with which we are seeing things and certainly with which we are seeing Scripture. And here's what postmodernism says, that none of us will get the same exact lens. And if there is our a, 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 a best lens, which postmodernism says there isn't, but as a Christian, if we say there's a best lens to have, postmodernism says you'll never get there that's such a such a kind and lighthearted philosophy isn't it and i agree none of us are going to get this perfectly right can you agree to that none of us see perfectly clearly what the script what scripture is in every verse are there verses that are clear and abundantly clear that all of us can see and say yes yes there are but there are also verses that our own lenses being brought to Scripture will actually color it and will keep us from seeing it clearly. But here's what, I'm, here's what I'm asking for. None of us will get this right exactly, but just like Christians are called to keep going back to the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and to live increasingly sanctified lives as we grow, so Christians are also called to grow in the way they view the Bible. That we grow in the being more and more biblical as we're more and more in this book. So let's say it another way. As they grow, Christians should become more and more aware of how the Bible thinks and reasons and argues. and They should hold more and more deeply to biblical reasoning and loosen their grip on mere worldly reasoning. Some of you are going, where are you getting this from the Bible? And I'm going to go there now, but I want to start this whole thing with reminding us that we all bring a lens to Scripture. And we all need to be careful about realizing the lens that we bring to Scripture. Because right here, right at this point in Scripture is a good test for us to see how we are doing at reading the Bible, either as the Bible would have us or as 21st century people imposing our views onto the Bible. Right here. Here it is. Ready? As a general rule, the world in the 21st century tends to minimize sin and maximize their view of love. Can I put that in quotes? Love. Minimize sin minimize wrongdoing, maximize their definition of love. Now, this is not a political conversation. This actually works its way into every fabric of discussion and and all of who we are. That tends to be the 21st century mindset. The Bible, as a general rule, presents sin as eternally offensive and rebellious. Is that fair enough. Those of you that are that read Scripture, that sin is eternally offensive, and rebellious, and God's love, and His holiness are never against each other. So God is love. Some of you know that. Yes, and God is holy. How does that work together? The Bible says there's no problem with that. No problem with God being the most loving being and yet the most holy being, and those two things come together. Now, at this point, ask yourself, have I brought in any of the world's philosophy into my own thinking? Is that possible for you and for me? And I think if we're honest, we'll say, to some extent, we, we have that. That's, there's part of our thinking. We've tended to maybe minimize sin in the way we think. Sin's just not that big of a deal. And we know this has happened when we fail to see how bad the Bible paints our rebellion before God. In other words, we see sin as the world sees it, not as something that is worthy of eternal judgment. You ever been, you, the, the idea of hell in the Bible, ever just make you go, I just don't, I just don't like that. That just doesn't feel right to me. And maybe it's because... We have brought in a certain viewpoint of the world, which has taken sin and dropped it down to, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Whereas the Bible is presenting sin as a colossal rebellion against a high and holy God. So, when we see God not judging sin, this is the point now, and instead giving comfort to people, it fails to shock us. When we see God not judging sin, it is supposed to shock us. But instead, when do we typically get shocked? When do I get shocked? We are far more shocked when God does judge sin. We're far more shocked and we say in our hearts, how can he do that? Why is he so mean? Why does God just Is he such a, just a bad, he just seems like a really angry person to, to make such a big deal about this thing called sin. We're shocked when that happens. And yet we are not shocked when God actually gives comfort to the very people that in some ways he should rightly judge. Can I make a plea that we become Bible people And we become shocked by the mercy of God, not by the judgment of God. Because His judgment is simply, He could wipe us all out. No problem for our sin. And yet it's the mercy of God that causes us to stop and to take notice and to think about things. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 19th century famous, famous preacher, and one day he was preaching on Romans chapter 9, verse 13, where it says, it is written, Jacob I love, this is God speaking, but Esau I hate it. And he had a woman who came up to him after the sermon, and she said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. And I've listed Spurgeon's reply. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Now, if you get that, I think you are closer to the heart of Scripture and you are closer to the heart of the gospel because the gospel should never cease to make us just go, oh my gosh! How in the world am I here right now standing in the love of God? But because what the world does is diminish our sin, we go, oh yeah, well God loves me. Of course he loves me. I'm just not that bad of a person. I'm doing pretty good as a human being. And I want to challenge us to not lose our awe that it is a shock to the entire universe that God would let one sin go unpunished. So, let's look at our text where God says, comfort, comfort in verse 1. And I want to argue now why, how, how is it that God can say comfort to a people that has rebelled and sinned against Him. How can that happen? Let's look now at verse 9, and let's see if we can get an idea for how God can say comfort to a people that is not worthy of God's comfort. Chapter 40, verse 9, God says to Isaiah, "'Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion.' herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. The first thing we notice in this passage is that God's people are called to go up to a high mountain, and the idea here is that they need as many people as possible to hear what they are about to say. So in those days, if you were a messenger, you would go up to a place that was elevated because your voice would carry. You know, we, we learned in in the New Testament that Jesus used natural um, natural amphitheaters in the in the in the terrain so that he could speak to large amounts of people. But you would go up to a place where you could shout right? We call it shouting from the rooftops. You could shout to people and they would all hear you. Get to a place, God says, where everybody can hear you. Now, what does he say next? Notice the word herald, herald. God's people are supposed to speak as heralds on behalf of God. Now, what's a herald? We talked about this before, if you've been with us. A herald is one who speaks on behalf of a king, A herald is meant to bring the king's words. A herald doesn't invent their own words. A herald is not a PR director. Like, they're not not trying to take God's words and spin God's words to make that word more palatable to whatever the people are is that they're trying to speak to. They have one job. Speak the words of the king. And here the king is God. So they are, God's people are to to get to a high place and they are to herald. Now, what are they to herald? What is happening here? They are to herald, the word is good news. They are to herald good news. Now, if you look into the Hebrew of this word, the word is bashar in Hebrew. And that means to bring a report, to bring news, but it's Specifically, its original appearance in the Bible is not right here. Its original appearance in the Bible happens in all of those earlier books of the Bible that are talking about the history of the wars of Israel and all the things that are going on because whenever an army or a king would be victorious in battle, they would send a herald to run to the towns that were around them and they would proclaim the good news of the victory of the king. So the herald was to go out and to say, the king has won the battle. The king is victorious. In ancient times, the nations that would fight would often have to find a big open field to fight in. And that was usually far away from the cities and the towns. And so the townspeople, whenever they were of one particular side that was going out to battle, would sit and would wait and would literally not know what their fate was going to be. Because if the one king, the king on their side won, well, yay, yay for our side, right? But if the other king won, then that king just won the territory that we were all living in. And then that king would usually send a herald to proclaim what had happened. And so for everyone sitting in those towns, not out on the battlefield, it would be news of the battlefield to know what had happened and so if city A was fighting city B, the armies would be somewhere out in the middle, and they would be miles from either city. And if city A's king won, then two heralds would be sent, one back to city A, hey, our side won, yay, and then one to city B to say, I bring good news. The king from city A has won the battle, but, but what does that mean now for city B? Well, as we're going to find out in a second, it depends on who the king is. It depends on who the king is when a previously rebellious city now all of a sudden finds themselves under the reign and the rule of the king. What would you do if you were a king or a queen in that situation? And the heralds would issue the same proclamation from the victorious king. It would be the good news... Maybe that would be in quotes if you were not on the side, the winning side, in the sense that it's from the perspective of the winning side, it's good news. And the heralds would probably include the words, Behold your king. Why? Why would behold your king be important if you were heralding? He's coming. He's about to come through those gates in the city. He's coming. And the herald continues into Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 10. Here's what the herald says. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. If you're not familiar with the word recompense, that would be like his judgment, his justice. So notice that the king brings when he comes both reward and judgment. And for his people this is wonderful because his side won, right? Their side won if you are his people. But for the losing city, why was the herald sent to the losing city? Why is the herald at city B if city A's king won? Why are what are they there to do? They are there to declare the victory of the king. And they are there to give the losing city a decision, a decision to make. The herald is sent to give them time to decide which side they want to be on when the king arrives. They can lay down their weapons and join the side of the winning king, and all will be forgotten. Whatever they did to serve the previous king that is now defeated, all is forgotten and they can now be on the side of the winning king. Or they can be judged as rebels for siding against the king, and they will face his wrath. But perhaps if you were in that losing city, you would wonder what kind of reign this king would have. Is that not a If you're in the city that's all of a sudden been conquered by a new king, you might think to yourself, is this new king worthy of me laying down my arms? What if it's hell on earth? What if it's the most horrendous reign and rule that I could have ever experienced? I don't want to lay my weapons down. If to live under this king is worse than death itself. And some might stand and come up against him because they don't want to be under his reign because it was that bad in their thinking how would this king lead what kind of life would the people have under this king here's why isaiah i believe isaiah 40 verse 11 is written let's look at it what kind of king is this isaiah 40:11 he will tend his flock like a shepherd He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So, will will I be safe under this king? The the herald says he is a gentle shepherd and he leads with gentleness. But they might say, how can he be gentle? He just destroyed people on the battlefield. I mean, is that not a fair question? He just demolished an enemy army on the battlefield. What do you mean gentle? And the herald would say, this king is different. This king is a warrior that destroys his enemies. And he is a shepherd that deals tenderly with his people. This reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Susan, one of the human girls that goes to Narnia, she's having a conversation with Mr. Beaver. And Susan and Mr. Beaver are talking about this mysterious figure, Aslan. And Aslan is the king of Narnia, and he's the king of all of the realms. And Susan is asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan. And here's what Mr. Beaver says. He says, Aslan is a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, Mr. Beaver says. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, our king is not safe. Our king is a warrior that will defeat his enemies, but our king is gentle. He is good. And he sends his heralds to the earth before he comes to speak of his gentleness to all who will come to him. And those heralds proclaim to the previous kingdom living on the earth the good news. This is their message. This is the message of God's heralds. The battle is over. The great king has won. He is not only a sovereign king with all power and authority, he is kind and gentle. So lay down the weapons of your rebellion and join him. So kind and gentle that he's willing to deal with all former transgressions against him if you would lay your weapons down and seek him. And friends, that is the gospel. That is the gospel told through the story of Isaiah It's told through the picture of a conquering king who comes because that's what we have. That is precisely what's happening. And let me make this abundantly clear for us this afternoon. There really are two kingdoms in this universe. There is the kingdom of God, which we might call the kingdom of light, and there is the kingdom of Satan, which we might call the kingdom of darkness. In Genesis 3 mankind rebelled against God and joined the kingdom of Satan. So, you live on this earth and you live in the territory of the kingdom of Satan. You live in the territory of the kingdom of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we follow, we, we are born following the prince of the power of the air. That's a way of referring to that kingdom and that king. That's who we are born following. We are in that city that was previously um, part of the kingdom of Satan. And here comes someone your way, a herald from the kingdom of God, somebody speaking on behalf of the kingdom of God. And for many of you, this has already happened in your life. If you haven't had it happen, it's going to happen right now, And they tell you about the battle between Satan and Jesus Christ not a physical battle but nonetheless a battle that is more real than any earthly battle a battle that has more consequences for your life than any earthly battle that we have ever had news of on this earth Christ and Satan and the herald has been sent to you, I'm sorry and they will tell you how Jesus in that battle crushed Satan's head. Some of you remember the last few weeks we talked about the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 that one day one would come which would do what? Crush the head of the serpent. And when did that happen? When, when in human history did that take place? Well it took place on the cross when Jesus gave of himself and destroyed the power that the enemy had and was then raised victorious from the grave. Able to call now those who would come because he had purchased in his own blood their sins to where they were no longer under Satan's yoke anymore, but now free to be able to come to him and cling to him and to have their righteousness be proclaimed over them, not because it's their righteousness, but because it's Christ's righteousness. It's all that he did. And he would be their king if they would come. And so he sends his heralds out into the world to proclaim this good news, which we call gospel. That's what the word means, by the way. Gospel means good news. And the herald has been sent to you, and you live in that kingdom of Satan, and they say, behold, Jesus the King is coming. Behold your God. He is on his way. Now is the time to lay the weapons of your rebellion down and to realize that he is a good and gentle king who is tender with you. Because when he comes, verse 10, he will bring both reward and recompense. Both his reward and and his judgment when he comes. He will reward those who are his, and he will judge those who rebel. Friends, that's the good news. That's the gospel. How good of news is that for you? Chances are, if you have brought in ideas about the culture, about us just not being that bad, that's probably not very good news for you. Like it's the kind of news that you could kind of yawn at. Because what the culture has said to you is that you need you just need some help, self-help. You just need to read a few more books. You just maybe need a little more education in your life. Some would say that. Maybe you need a new political system in your life. Maybe you need better politicians. Maybe you need other people who are in this world to just act better. If they would just act better, I would be better. There's all kinds of things that the world will say about what's wrong with the world. And really what Scripture is saying is it's right here. It's inside of my chest. And I am as much a part of it as you are. And it's holistic. It's not, I got a little bit wrong with me, that I could just, oh, if I could just get this a little bit better... Scripture speaks in cataclysmic terms about our hearts. And the whole law, the whole standard of righteousness that God has put up in front of us is there to declare to us, you don't measure up to that. Do you understand? Your heart doesn't, can't possibly live up to that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which I think sums up so much of the law, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your strength and your... And it just... All of it, all of you should love God. And that that verse alone should make us go, nope, nope, didn't make that. And it sends us seeking a Savior that is outside of us to be able to do what we can't do. So if God's glory is not that great, and if your sin is not that bad, then you have little need of this this news. But if God's glory is worthy of perfectly righteous worship, and if you and I fail... In ourselves to come close to that standard, then this news becomes really good. Let me, let me lay something out for you. Let's imagine God's glory would be, let, let's start at the middle here. I'm gonna put my hands together like this. And I'm gonna say that going up this way would be going up in in terms of our perception of God's glory. How glorious is he? How majestic is he? How powerful and awesome is he? And you just raise that however, wherever that is, okay? You raise that however high you think God is worthy of your worship. And then with this hand, the one that's on the bottom, go down and start thinking about how bad is my sin? How bad is my sin in comparison to the greatness of God? And see that, and depending on, you put that wherever you want on your perception of how bad your sin is. When you've got that spot, that distance between those two, that is how glorious the gospel is. In other words, if God is not that glorious and your sin is not that bad, the gospel is about that great. But if God is high and lifted up and majestic, far beyond what my arm can go up, And if my depth of depravity outside of Christ is so far that it would go down through the bottom all the way to the other side of the earth, now you measure the distance between those two, and that's how good the news of the gospel is. In our worship services, what we aim at is to start in the beginning with raising this hand up. How good is God? How amazing is God? How powerful is he? And then at some point, we get in our worship services to confession, where we're trying to take this hand and we're trying to shoot it down as far as we possibly can and say, we in ourselves need to confess that we don't measure up. And you know what that does? It creates a gaping hole for the gospel. It creates a a desire for Christ in the cross to be able to come and to be able to fill that gap because that's what the gospel is doing. It's Christ in the cross filling that gap. And wow, what a work he has done. If we really know God's goodness and his holiness, and we really know our sinfulness and our depravity before him. So I want to speak to two groups this morning, this afternoon. I want to speak to those who are following Christ first, those who would come in here and would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, members of Echo, others who are joining us from other churches, you have received this gospel, it was glorious news for you most likely when you first received it, but since then, is it still good news for you? Since then, when you received it, is it still good news, and is it good news daily for you? Or have you developed new thoughts about why God is good to you? Like maybe, I'm just a pretty good person. You received the gospel at one point, but since then you feel like life is just working out pretty well for you. And of course God would be good with you in where you're at. Does the joy and the peace and the wisdom that now characterizes your life come from you? Have you slipped into thinking that you are just a really good human being and worthy by yourself of God's love. Here's the Apostle Paul to help us repent, ready? Galatians 3.3, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, that was the moment you came to Christ, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? That is a word that we need to hear because we often will forget how it was that we came to Christ in the first place. And you know what it does? It brings it back to where this gospel is not that big of a deal. We may have received it as a big deal, but now the gospel is not that bad because we're not that bad. And then there's ways in which God's glory gets diminished in our lives. And you know what? You know how we get affected by that? First of all, the gospel is something to be lived every day of our lives. Number two, we're called to share that gospel. How How glorious is the gospel to you? Because that, that will determine whether you are on fire for sharing it with other people. And there's a second group in this room. You may be here this afternoon and you have never really seen the point of all of this Jesus stuff. I mean, isn't it all just religious rituals and making people feel better? And I would point you back to the Bible. I would argue from the Bible, which has a unique perspective on the problem of the world. No other religion is like it. Scripture says things that do not compare with anything else, no other religious book. It alone declares that the problem with us cannot be remedied by all of those things I just said earlier, better education, better devotion, better religious practices, a better governmental system, better politicians, you name it. All the things that you think are going to make your life better, the Bible says no to those because the problem is not outside of us, it is inside of us and therein lies the offense of the gospel, that the gospel turns and points at you and me as the problem. We were born with a disposition to rebel from the one who created us. But God had planned from the very beginning of time to remedy this problem. He sent his son. Jesus Christ to live the life we were commanded to live, a life perfect in obedience, and then died as a sinner at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And his death was accepted as payment by God for the sins of all who had come to trust in him. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead was proof that this sacrifice was indeed accepted. And God then sent his people as heralds to go up to the highest mountain and shout from the rooftops the good news that Jesus won the battle. And now those same heralds are proclaiming, behold your God to a rebel people and pleading with them to lay down their weapons and join themselves to this great king who has saved them. So I encourage you, if you are here and you have not come to that place where you've laid your weapons down, that you would, even in this moment, decide to do that. And if you decide to do that, that's called faith. Believing what I cannot see. That this is true. So as I pray in a minute, I just would encourage you to consider to think about that, and then tell somebody here today, before you go, if that's a decision that you have made. I'd like to pray right now, and then we'll go into communion. Father, we want to see Your Word as You've commanded us to see Your Word. And we confess the lenses that we have are so often the lenses that we see from YouTube videos and TV and And social media and all those things, they they affect our lenses. And what we ask for is, is a view to Scripture that we can see from your perspective on our badness and our fallenness and your greatness. That the gospel would be sweeter for us than it ever has been before. And that for those of us that are trusting in you, we would walk out of this place proclaiming it from the mountaintops as you have commanded us to do. Because now, As New Testament Christians, we are your heralds going forth and proclaiming. God, would you give us that? Would you help us to see that? Holy Spirit, come and fill us and give us new eyes to see what it is that you say about us and about you in your word. Do that now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.